Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam, this is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. I get so inspired by some of the smart young people going into manufacturing today. Jonathan Friedel is definitely high on that list. Jonathan and his brother-in-law started Black Mountain Manufacturing in 2016 in Greeley, Colorado, which is just outside of Denver. We have a really wide-ranging conversation because Jonathan has his hands into so many things. We talked about his unconventional educational background, including his unique non-high school experience, how Black Mountain was opportunistic to situations that ended up building the company, how quickly they got up to $5 million in sales, and then how that crashed and how they're building it back up again today. The struggles of being an owner in the early days. He is really honest about how hard it is to get a business going and share some of the personal hurdles he overcame. We also get into getting the seller to finance used equipment for you and how he produces kick-ass videos for his shop. Got to take a look at his website and see the video that he created himself. Unbelievable. So really good learnings from a guy in the trenches today. And what a dynamo. I'm sure you're really going to enjoy it. Jonathan, welcome to the Job Shop Show. Thank you. Glad you are here today. And one of the things is you have just such an interesting background. And I'm just intrigued with the fact that you learned to weld when you were 14 and you were making money at it shortly thereafter. And then you went to college with the goal of going to med school. And obviously that didn't happen. So maybe we start with you telling me how you got into welding and how that path overwhelmed your med school ambitions. Well, I would say it's a bit of a complicated story and it's a difficult story to tell without telling my whole life story. I've never been able to compartmentalize my background and my education very well without giving my entire backstory. So I guess with that preface, I'll just dive in. When I was a kid, I was a bit of a handful 
my parents had nine children. And at one point I was more than a bit of a handful. And my parents sent me to live with my grandfather. He was an ex-Marine drill instructor. And uh, yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun for me. So I moved in with this guy. He had a big ranch, more or less in Arkansas. And he thought it would be good if I learned how to weld. So he marched me down to the local community college and told the admissions people there that I was his son and that he wanted to take welding classes with me. So this old man who I did not get along with and I started taking welding classes together and we were both fiercely competitive people and we competed with each other for the top spot in our class. And that went off and on for a year and a half. And then I won. I was better. (laughs) (laughs) While I was taking these welding classes, I started taking other college classes like blueprint reading and, and algebra and things like that. And what it ended up happening is I just started transferring. Once I finished up learning to weld in Arkansas and I moved back home, I just started to bounce from different universities as a transfer student. And no one at any point along the way thought to ask if I had a, a high school diploma or a GED or anything. Never went to high school, really. Never That's got incredible. a GED. Yeah, thank you. In my early adulthood, when I was like, I want to see 19 years old, I transferred to the University of Dallas. My brother was there as a Catholic liberal arts school. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting a bachelor's from the University of Dallas in theater of all things. And I really enjoyed directing theater. And I thought that that's what I was going to do when I graduated. Mm-hmm. That was not what I was going to do because I left the University of Dallas and I went to Chicago and worked for a theater company and did not like the environment. So I decided that I was going to be a physician. I had always been kind of fascinated by science Mm -hmm. and the idea of of diving into something that deep really appealed to me. So I started taking post-bac classes and I didn't have any of the educational foundation to apply at a medical school. So I, I kind of went backwards and took all those classes and started applying and I was also working as a welder off and on between taking these classes to prepare myself for medical school. And yeah, I would go weld and save money mm-hmm. so I could pay for school. And at one point I was, I was working in a power plant in Wyoming, working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And I left that job one evening, hopped on an airplane, flew all night, showed up for med school interview, and then went back to work. I didn't get into med school, obviously, because of what I'm doing now, but I ended up applying three times. But the first two times that I applied, it was like one time I was working in a boatyard in Louisiana, building boats for the Navy. And it was like, it was one of those deals where I punch out, I go to the airport, I fly to mm-hmm. the university, I take a med school interview, and then I go back to my job. And I always chalk up not getting into med school to performing poorly in interviews And one of the reasons I think I performed poorly is I was just like in a really heavy blue collar environment. And I would show up to these interviews and I just did not fit the algorithm of the bright eyed, much younger medical student. The third time that I applied, I had just gotten a master's in physiology from IE medicine and my daughter had also been born. I didn't get in and my wife and I could not really afford for me to chase the dream anymore. So I started welding again. My business partner and I bounced from welding job to welding job, trying to increase our income earning potential. And you before made pretty, we knew good, it, pretty good money, didn't you? Welding? Initially, not so much. It was like your income was, if you're working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, doing what they call a shutdown in like a power plant or an oil refinery, you can make good money because you're working 84 hours a week, but you're still only getting paid in the high 20s an hour, low 30s, or at least I was back then. But 
when we made the jump to welding with trucks, basically you have a truck and you throw a welding machine in the back and you show up on site as a contractor and you're kind of a one man welding army working mm-hmm. out of your truck that pays in the neighborhood of 75 to $90 an hour, depending on what part of the country you're in. So we started doing huh. that and I ended up in Colorado in the oil fields here. And at some point along the way, when I was getting my master's, I bought my first CNC machine. I've always loved building things, always been uber passionate about you know, deconstructing something or redesigning it or mm-hmm. just building anything. It was 2013. I was in the middle of my master's and I had this old 1960s Bridgeport Boss Series machine that I had bought when I was welding on the road. And my brother-in-law, Isaac, and I, who's now my business partner, we drove across the country. We picked this thing up. We brought it back. And I had the delusion that I was going to break it apart and muscle it into his basement. And uh, when I saw the machine for the first time, I was like, there's no way that's going down a set of stairs. Like that's 3,000 pounds of iron. Right, so right. we built this hut around it and put it in his backyard. And I retrofit this machine to run off of a PC. And I started building things in his backyard in this foam hut. And that machine followed me to Colorado when I came out here. And by the time the oil industry crashed in 2015, I had a shop in a, it was like a 600 square foot space, Mm -hmm. 600 square foot, like plywood space. I had this Bridgeport machine. Wait, when you say Uh, shop, you mean in your backyard that you constructed or you'd rented some space or? When I came out to Colorado, all of my equipment kind of followed me. My wife and I moved out here for the oil and gas industry. I was running a truck and welding in the field, as they call it. Yeah. And I had all my equipment back home, which it was more than just that Bridgeport boss machine. When I was taking post-bac classes to prepare myself for medical school, I had a welder in my bedroom and I had torn up my carpet and I had an English wheel and I was building a cafe racer motorcycle right next to my bed in my bedroom before I got married I should have listened to myself because of like if you looked at the things that I spent my time doing when I wasn't studying it was clear that I had an obsession with just building things and ultimately you know obviously that that took over and sounds uh, like you had had a very patient girlfriend's now wife who allowed you to pursue your passions and didn't think it was too weird you're building a motorcycle in your bedroom you make a point, Jay, that I was going to focus on later, but I might as well talk about it now. I've done the, the most remarkable things in my life that I've done have been made possible by a profoundly patient and understanding woman who might just be the most selfless person I know. She has like allowed me to do things that I don't think most women would allow their husbands to do, from buying equipment to chasing ideas, and just has been so supportive. I could not have done what I do now without her support at so many points along the way. What is her name? Her name is Crystal. Oh, shout out to Crystal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not to, not to jump around too much, but like there was a point when we had just started our business after 2015, the oil, oil industry crashed. I had all this equipment in this shop in Colorado and I conned my brother-in-law, not, not conned him, but I talked to him into coming up and starting this job shop with me. And it wasn't initially going to be a job shop. We were going to be a product-based company. So we came up with a small product to kind of cut our teeth on. Mm -hmm. It was a CNC machine bottle cap that would screw on the top of a water bottle. And Mm -hmm. then you could 
clip into it with a carabiner and put it on your belt loop. If you've got five minutes of your life to waste, you can actually get on Kickstarter and watch our video and look at our campaign. But that was the first thing we ever did as a company together. So you financed it on Kickstarter? We did, yes. Yeah. For someone who may not know what Kickstarter is, can you explain the concept? And I'm curious how it worked for you. So Kickstarter is a website where you can bring an idea to market using what they call crowdfunding. And instead of going to a single investor and saying, I have this idea, can you help me bring it to market? This is how much money I need. Rather than doing that, you go to more or less a crowd of people and you say, listen, everybody, I've got this cool idea. I want all of you to buy my product before I develop it. And if enough of you commit to buying my product, then I will bring this product to market. So you can go to Kickstarter, you can have a, a product design you can make mm -hmm. your prototype, you make a video, and then you basically tell the Kickstarter audience, like if I sell X number of units, then I will develop all of them and I'll ship them to you. If I don't sell X number of units inside of my crowdfunding window, usually it's you know 30 days, then all of you will get your money back and you can move on with your lives and I'll come up with another idea or move on with my life. So how much money were you trying to raise or number of units? I think we sold $17,000 worth of these bottle caps to people all over the world. I mean, everywhere, Japan, China, the <laughs> UK, Europe, mostly in the United States. But I was surprised by how much traction the product had overseas. The problem was the machinery we had was not sufficient to produce the product profitably. At this point, we had an old Mazak lathe from the 1980s and an older Matsura that I had also retrofit. And for days, I just stood in front of that machine making the same thing over and over again so we could fulfill that uh, Kickstarter campaign. I'm going to jump around myself a little bit now because before we get going, you were talking about how you acquired the Matsura and some other pieces of equipment. I think it's just fascinating on your financing technique, which is, I think, really relevant for some of our listeners who may not have a lot of money but have the dream of opening a shop or want to buy equipment for whatever reasons. Can you just share how you acquired the Masura and then maybe anything else that was along similar lines? So there are two Matsuras in our shop. The first Matsura was a Matsura that I purchased off of eBay for $785. The second Matsura is a Matsura that's more like a vertical machining center. It's a 2002 model. It's very fast. It doesn't have a lot of what they call look ahead. So it doesn't move smoothly in the corners. But when we were first starting our business, we didn't have money. And we didn't have credit. And we didn't want to go to investors. We wanted to keep all the equity in the house. And what we ended up doing was owner financing the first two big pieces of equipment that came in our shop. The first was this 2002 Matsura. We found this machine on Craigslist. It was for sale down in Parker by a company called Tag Team Manufacturing. And we went and we looked at it. We were very honest with the owner of the machine when we showed up. We told him we couldn't afford it, but we would love to look at it. We love the brand Matsura. And Terry uh, Tiger walked us in a shop and showed us the machine. And we talked for a bit and we thanked him. And then we left. And a few days later, he called us and he said, listen, I have a background in finance. I really need to get this machine off our floor because I have a new one showing up in a week. I haven't had a lot of people come look at it would you consider allowing me to carry the note of the machine and owner finance it for you? 
And we were really surprised, but we ended up jumping on it and paid the machine off. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge for us to be able to take up a piece of machinery like that so early on in our business and start leveraging it, start making parts on it. So we did that with our first VMC and we also me, did that with the water let, jet. Yeah, let me stop you there because I think that this is so powerful. And if you put yourself into that owner's head, he's getting a brand new machine in. He doesn't have a lot of floor space. And I've been in this position. You have an older piece of equipment and the cost to move it and store it till you find a buyer, it's a hassle, number one, and you're not going to sell it for that much money. How much did you pay for the Matsura? We paid, I want to say 35000 for it, yeah. but I cannot remember for off the top of my head. It was either thirty-five or twenty-five. We bought a lot of machinery since then. But the, when you're depending on the size of the shop where the equipment may be located, again, it's finding a space to put that and not having a buyer, having to store it. And then somebody who wants to buy it wants to see it powered up because otherwise they're not going to pay you what you should get for an older piece of equipment. For him, it, it was probably a no-brainer because if you failed to pay for it, he had the optionality of coming and grabbing it back but in the meantime, you were storing it for free. You moved it for him and it was powered and up and running and potentially could show somebody a worst case scenario. I encourage folks, you look at it from your perspective. Wow, that's, that's really expensive. But what is the other person thinking? What are his pain points? And a lot of times people, they want the easy way out. And from what I'm hearing, that was an easy way out for the owner of this machine, Jonathan. It really was. The other easy way out that I think most shop owners take is they'll sell it to a used equipment dealer and they'll mm -hmm. sell it for pennies on the dollar, which I'm not a big fan of because used equipment dealers, apologies to any of them that may be listening to this podcast, but used equipment dealers are more or less middlemen between the people that own the machinery before and the new owners. And as a used equipment dealer, it's not like a car that you can hop in and drive for a few miles and listen to the engine and understand if you're a good mechanic, what may or may need to be done on that, on that car. A used equipment is much more finicky and the gremlins can be buried so much more, so much deeper. And it's like you, as a used mm. equipment dealer, it's really hard to insulate yourself against selling a, a bad piece of equipment. And plus you're just, you're well, just never that, getting what a piece point. of equipment is worth. So even from you buying it from the owner directly. I know you said you like to tinker, but how did you get the confidence to be able to purchase this Matsura and know that there's probably something that's not quite right just because it's older and it's got a lot of hours on it and you don't know the machine? How do you say, you know what, I'm just going to figure it out and, and have that confidence? It depends on who you are. I wouldn't recommend everyone doing that. But for me, by the time I bought that Matsura, I had already bought and retrofit with new controllers two other machines. So I had a, I would say a deeper understanding of how CNC equipment works and what needs to happen and the control logic and a much healthier set of, of troubleshooting skills. Mm -hmm. And we did have trouble with the machine. I think right away we had to replace some thrust bearings in the Y-axis mm -hmm. and the controller was problematic. But, 
you know, I would say any job shop, especially a, a CNC job shop owner understands you've got to have some very sharp problem solving skills if you're going to succeed and, and stay in business. Well, I will throw in that I did not have those skills. So <laughs> I, I made the decision to buy new so that the skills came with the equipment dealer. But to your point, if you have those skills, you can save a lot of money. You can. The better your problem solving skills are, the more machine you can buy with your money because you can buy older and more used equipment. I'm a strong proponent for not necessarily buying new, especially when you're just starting out your company. A lot of people that may have the aspiration to start their own job shop, you have in your mind a brand new, you know, insert name brand machine here in, in your head. And like, that's what you're aspiring to. But the reality is that you don't necessarily need that right out of the gate. Like you need to generate revenue. You need to build relationships with clients and you need to build a name for yourself. You don't necessarily need to have a brand new Mazak or a brand new Haas. They're nice, but- Well, I look at it as- you need output and you can get a lot more spindles for the same price with used equipment than one piece of new equipment. And that yeah. gets you a lot more output revenue and you build from there. The growth you've had as a company, so you, you talked a little bit about when you started, it's 2021 now, we wrapped up 2020. I know the oil and gas industry crashed last year, but you, you've seen phenomenal growth. You hit a high, you shared in 2018, uh, what was it, 30 people and a little over 5 million in sales. How did you grow so fast and what sort of ceilings did you hit and how did you bust through them? Lots of questions there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I wanna, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? <laughs> <laughs> so when we started our company, like I said, we we're going to be a product shop. And then very quickly after launching that product on Kickstarter and going through the fulfillment process, we realized that we weren't ready to be a product shop and we had to generate revenue. I mean, I can't really articulate just how poor I was at that early stage of my business. We were so poor that going back to my wife for a second, I, I woke up one morning at 6 a.m. and you know, for weeks, my wife and I had been stressing about finances and making the business work and I couldn't really find work in the oil field because the oil field has crashed. And my wife was like furiously crocheting. She's like a serial crocheter. And she'd been awake since three in the morning and she looked up at me and she was like, I've solved all our financial problems. <laughs> and I asked her, you know, I was kind of worried. I just sort of looked at her and I was like, what, 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 what are you talking about? And she's like, we're going to live in a camper. And um, I told her to put that idea out of her head. <laughs> but six months later, like we were living in a camper with our three kids next to our shop and we did that for a year and a half. So right. stage one of the, the, for the first answer to your question is we scaled down our life. Like everything revolved around succeeding in our business. We put paying our, off our student loans on the back burner. We lived in a camper. We lived so frugally that every dime the business made could go back into the business. The second thing we did was this. We found an oil company that needed help with something. This oil field company was using stainless in their locations. A, lo a location is where oil comes out of the ground. The oil doesn't just come out of the ground and go in a truck and go to a refinery. There's some post-processing that happens to the oil at the surface right as it comes out of the ground. And 
there's a facility invariably that has to exist. And my business partner and I spent, before we started our business, that's what we did. We built facilities, you know, running our welding trucks. And at the time, my business partner was still in and out of the oil field because the business couldn't support both of us. And he found this oil company who was using stainless and they were using stainless and then a polymer line. And what they would do is they would use this compression fitting to connect the stainless piping that my brother-in-law was welding to this polymer line. But this coupling worked really poorly. It required this gasoline powered machine and this big compression mandrel. Sometimes five or six guys would take two hours to install one compression fitting. And the company man for the oil company was really frustrated with it. He hated it. And my brother-in-law was working for a contractor at the time and pretty much just approached the company man and said, hey, we have a machine shop. We can build you a better coupling and weld your stainless. And from one moment to the next, he went from being a, a subcontractor to having a contract with the oil company. They said, build me the coupling. Here is a master service agreement with us. You're going to weld our stainless from now on. So we started doing oil field work. A business partner came back to shop and we prototyped this coupling that would connect a polymer line to a stainless line. And we built so many iterations of this. And we ended up with a coupling that could be installed with a hand pump hydraulic system. And it could take two guys, 20 minutes to install this coupling. And it was so successful that the gas company called the company that was selling them the polymer and the coupling and said, we're only going to buy your polymer from now on. We're not going to buy your coupling because your coupling sucks. And the polymer company was so angry that their legal department sent like threatened litigation against us and this guy for patent infringement. At this point, we already had a provisional patent on our design. It was definitely different from theirs, but it was enough to make the gas company go, you know what? Just stop with the poly. We're going to run stainless on all these lines. And we lost the revenue from the coupling and so much sunk cost there. But in the end, they gave us all of that piping work. So we started hiring welders to weld the stainless piping. And then we started to weld the carbon piping. And before we knew it, we had 30 people in the shop and out in the oil field building process piping and, and then inside our shop, focusing on industries outside the oil field. To answer your question, the first thing we did to get to that, I would say revenue amount and get to that size in our company was one, we made it a priority to the point where we sacrificed everything in our lives for the success of the company. And the second thing we did was we worked hours that most people I don't think would work. That period where my wife and I were living in the camper next to our shop, I worked seven days a week and I would leave the camper at six in the morning and I would come back sometimes at one or two in the morning. It was hard. <laughs> it was a lot yeah. of hours. Like that period of my life, like almost ended our, our partnership, almost ended my marriage. It was a very stressful time, but I would say working that hard, we were able to make it happen. I don't think that that gets enough credit. People hear the success stories and... I didn't put in quite the hours, it sounds like you did, but in the early days of Rapid, I spent my Saturday evenings going back into the shop, staying there till sometimes midnight, one in the morning, quoting parts and just doing all the stuff. And my buddies were out doing whatever on Saturday nights, and I had a family then. But that's what you have to do to make the business work and get to the point where you can hire people to, to grow your business, right? Yes, you make a great point. 
Jay, that I, that I want to focus on there. People in the business world and entrepreneurs, they tend to focus on not necessarily what I would call quick fixes, but it's like they focus on the last 20%. And what I mean when I say that is they focus on making the adjustments to an already running business, making mm. the smart decisions. Yeah. And, and those are important things, but it's like nobody really talks about the amount of work that it takes to get to the point where you have a running business. And it's like, I call it the other 80%. Kind of the foundation. It's a grind. (laughs) It is. You just put your head down and you just do it. And and you may not like it. You may like it, but you may not like it. But that's what you have to do. There's nobody else to do it. You can't afford to hire other people to do it. You end up doing things that you never thought you could do, that people don't think are humanly possible. Working hours and, and challenging yourself and learning new things and developing new skill sets all under the pressure of keeping your company alive. Yeah. What were some of the specific ceilings that you had to bust through? Do you remember any of those? Or another word for ceiling perhaps is constraint. Space has always been a constraint, Jay. Hmm. I can't stress that enough. We've had three different spaces throughout the course of our business. The first was the roughly 600 square foot space that we started in. The second was a 2,100 square foot space that was modular. And as we grew, we started to take more units and knock down more walls and our mm. space got bigger. But at one point in our business, before we moved into the building that we were in now, all of our manufacturing equipment was inside the building and fabrication would happen out in the parking lot. And then we would store finished product out in the street where cars would normally park. And we were fortunate <laughs> enough to be on a dead end street. But at some point, traffic just started naturally routing around all of this oil field piping that we had stacked up in the street. And it was like a two lane road became a one lane road. And eventually the city showed up and and they were like, guys, this is a little out of control. Like (laughs) you guys need to rein it in. At that point, like we even had manufacturing equipment out in the parking lot. We had this old KUKA robot that came out of a GM plant. We had a plasma cutter attached to it. And that's how we were like coping our I-beam. And then we had a bandsaw out there. And right around that time, we this is in Colorado. It's not, it's not Texas where it's so the temperatures get down there. There's rain and probably snow. <laughs> There's snow, sleet, rain, all of the above had to be contended with on a daily basis, man. It was <laughs> like, what were we doing? Oh my gosh. Thinking about it now. Our landlord was so understanding, very relaxed guy, didn't get worked up easily, but he heard that we were considering buying out the last tenant of his property because we just put a deposit down on the laser. And he was like, no, I can't have my whole building be this one company that just started and is like careening down, you know, the path of growth. And uh, he asked us to leave. So I think he gave us a couple of months, but then we found this building and we're already growing out of it too. So how many square feet are you now? 9,600 square feet. Space was always a concern particularly in the early days, you just cram stuff in as you were discussing. And then I guess I'll I'll call it a ceiling or just a mindset switch that I made. I looked at really what the cost was for space beyond that I needed. And I thought about the growth that we were having and how long it would take to fill up this unused space. And I looked at it as an insurance policy of having extra space because what was going to constrain the growth was just not having enough space to put people and equipment for the growth that I was pretty confident we were going to have. So 
we we went from a well we started out probably with about four thousand square feet and we did sort of did like what you did we kept adding little spaces in this this building a couple other spaces and then we went and we made the decision to buy a twenty five thousand square foot building the thought was we were going to subdivide it and rent out eight thousand square feet to a warehouse something something just for storage and between the time when we sort of were looking and when we signed it and we were getting ready to move we said you know what it it doesn't make sense to lease out this space let's just we ended up it wasn't empty per se there were a lot of gaps in equipment because <laughs> our equipment definitely did not fill the space at the same time in two years it did fill the space and in i think three years we were overcrowded it, yeah i was going to ask how long did it take you to outgrow it, that twenty-five thousand? you just keep rejiggering it two things by having the ownership of the space we could sort of do what we wanted to do and the second was if you are growing at a consistent level just project out what your needs are two or three years and imagine what would happen if potentially you grew even faster if the space that you're looking at if you're growing definitely don't buy space for what you need today buy space for what you're going to or lease space what you're going to need two three five years out it's relatively inexpensive in worst case again you can temp temporarily rent it out for storage probably that's my two cents <laughs> that's a great point any other constraints or ceilings that you busted through how did you learn to manage 30 people that is the other constraint i have learned a lot of different skill sets over the course of starting and running this company and i would say the most rewarding skill set i've learned is how to collaborate more effectively with people i talk about our company culture and our environment and the way that our company operates i tell people that thomas edison invented the light bulb 100 years ago or so and the age of, you know, the one man coming up with one invention that changes the world is kind of past. And now, you know, really life-altering innovations that are brought about are brought about by teams of people collaborating together. So when I think about the kind of company that I want to have and how I want it to operate, I want it to be defined more than anything by how effectively everyone collaborates together. And that wasn't necessarily an easy thing for me to learn. I had never been in a management role at any point in my life, I'd never been in charge of people. I'd spent half of my life as a student and the other half as a welder. You had to move from a doer to a manager. I did. And then ultimately from a manager to a leader. That's a critical step that I don't know if, if people focus on enough. What do you think is the difference between a manager and a leader? How would you so many things. Those? But to me, it kind of boils down to a manager assigns tasks and a leader inspires people to take the initiative to take those tasks on themselves, kind of to self-assign tasks and execute. Do you like being a leader or a manager better? Uh, I like being a leader a lot better. I don't like being a manager. I tell everyone at the company that I don't work here. I'm here to tweak the system. And that affords me the opportunity to interact with people the way that I need to, to more effectively lead them, not so much manage. I want to just talk about the partnership a little bit. How do you divvy up roles? And is one of you more of a manager than a leader? If you have to say the buck stops here in terms of management, who does that? We have a COO who's our manager, mm. and that is my younger brother, Robert. And I'm the CEO. And Isaac is, I would say, kind of a floater right now. He's my business partner in the other half of Black Mountain. 
Why did you bring your brother on as COO? Was it to specifically to do management so you didn't have to? We did. So we brought my brother on, I would say, it was about two years ago. We brought him on to manage the day-to-day operations so that we could focus on developing new relationships, bringing new technology and integrating new machinery. And that, and we were just tired of managing the day-to-day operations. Have you ever heard of the concept, who, not how, that was put out by Dan Sullivan at Strategic Coach? You just sort of described everyone has their unique abilities, things that they do really well that just seem to come naturally to them and that really no one else can do. So the, the who is someone, when you look at a problem, you don't ask, how am I going to do that? You say, who is going to do it? And the who might be yourself, might fall into your unique abilities. But a lot of times, a better who is someone else who that falls into their unique abilities, or at least it's something that they're very confident in doing, which frees you up to to do exactly what you just described, because that's what's going to ensure the health of the business and ultimately the growth. Great concept. Not yeah. Howie. He actually wrote a book with Dr. Ben Hardy on it, if you want to take a look What's at it. What's the book it. called? Who Not How. Not How, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll pick yeah. that one up. Yeah, Dan Sullivan is just a fantastic coach for entrepreneurs. He came up with that concept in a conversation with Dean Jackson, somebody who's a, been a longtime participant in Strategic Coach. I just want to circle back though on, I'm going to share a couple things with you. I look at, there were a couple key things in the growth of Rapid that decisions that I had to consciously make that allowed us to grow that were ceilings or constraints. And the first one was that I was super involved in quoting in the early days. And I sort of patted myself on the back. I put out great quotes. I anticipated the customers requesting beyond the quotes. And we've got a lot of orders, but we kept growing and it got overwhelming. So I started out by having someone else in the company prep quotes for me and set them up for me. So I didn't have to do that work, but even that got to a point where it wasn't working. And I started having a couple folks quote parts, the simple parts, and it just bugged me that they didn't do it the way that I would do it, that they just missed me what were obvious things. And so I would get in there and redo it before sending it out. At some point it dawned on me that, you know, I was the bottleneck and I had to, I had to make it, I had to make a decision. Rapid could, at least in my eyes, put out perfect quotes and we would get a really high win rate or I could teach other people how to quote, put some guardrails in place, but sort of turn my head and not look at how the sausage was made. And as long as we were winning orders that were at the right price, then that was good. That allowed me to do the things that no one else in the company could do. So that was a really conscious decision at one point that I just had to give up the idea that all the quoting had to be done by me. And there was such a thing as a perfect quote. We went through the same, we've kind of come to take it for granted, but the the ceiling that we're dealing with now is software. 
And I think the people in manufacturing, the, the people that do what I do, that really have the advantage are people that can do what I do, but they're also software developers, the people that can write their own software. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that's something you did with Rapid is you guys fortunate. started writing I, your own software. Oh yeah. I was fortunate to have a individual, Steve Lynch, who took the ball into his own hands to learn programming. He started with macros and he moved into the programming language of SolidWorks. And that's, yes, we developed software skills, hired specific software trained people. We considered doing that about two years ago. We were mm -hmm. going through the same growing pains that you're talking about going through specifically in the quoting process. Mm. When everything you do is brand new and you're never going to do it again, quoting can very easily become a massive bottleneck for you. And it's at the end of the day, a very algorithmic process. You look at an entire assembly or a single component and you basically break it down into every single step needed to produce that particular part from the material to services that you have to outsource and every single step that you perform in-house. And we kind of approach quoting that way. Not everyone does. Some people shoot from the hip. Some people look at what the material costs and they just add a multiplier onto that. But the mm -hmm. best way to quote something, obviously, is to be very data oriented and to charge a certain dollar amount for every single step in the process that it takes to produce that part. And we kind of considered for a while hiring software developers and building a piece of software that would analyze the geometry of a CAD file or a DXF file. We knew it was possible because there's a couple other companies out there that do that, but we hadn't actually found anyone in particular that sold the software. We reached out to a company in Utah that does laser cutting and they have their own software. And I talked to the guy and he's like, nope, not selling it. It's my competitive advantage. Um, <laughs> sorry about your luck. And then at some point, not long after we found a paperless parts and I'm a huge proponent of paperless parts. They're an amazing company with an incredible team doing things that are profoundly changing manufacturing for, for people like me. And using paperless parts, it really opened a door for us because I could hand off the quoting process to people much the way that you're talking about you were doing it rapid. Mm -hmm. I had already started kind of handing off the quoting to another guy in our shop. I had a set of really complicated spreadsheets that, that we would enter data into and then use that data to manage the project once we got the PO. And he was already, I would say, 30% of the way there. And then we got paperless and I could just, he and I learned paperless. And now I am not really involved in quoting, which is unusual for a company of my size doing what we do. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely unusual. I mean, I can focus on my business. I can be a floater where I run machinery sometimes if we're down a guy. I can go have meetings with clients. It's something that used to consume 40 hours of my week that now consumes maybe four or five. And we're quoting twice as much as we were ever quoting before. And you're probably getting the quotes out faster. Getting the quotes out faster, the quoting process, like we can more easily charge for rush fees. Not only that, but like, this is something that I don't think people understand well enough. When you quote a project, if you quote the project correctly, by the time you submit the quote to the client, you have performed or you have planned out the job. Like you have mm -hmm. bu built a mental model in your mind of 
of everything that, that project is going to require. You've fitted into your schedule and you essentially have preloaded all of, of the project management work for that one particular project. And like doing that has helped us tremendously. We quote a project and the client gives us a PO and we, with a few mouse clicks, release the project to the shop and all of the data that our guys need the reference to successfully execute that project is already loaded into the system. You but you've got to have good paperless. software to be able to do that. Yeah, you, you do that through paperless. Could not really do it well without paperless. So I think folks know I'm a co-founder of paperless and that was actually my mission was I knew most shops would not bring software developers on nor have the skills to develop their own software. And by the way, I should say we there is a automated sheet metal quoting program called eRapid that's a plugin for SolidWorks that Proto Labs still has available for folks. And we spent, I think I worked with three outside software developers and spent literally over a million dollars trying to get that up and running. I just kept plugging away at it because I knew how important it was. And that's the amount of money that we spent before we got it right and we finally did it a different way. So it's not, it's not an easy task, but that's part of, I want to make American manufacturers successful. And I just know how hard quoting is and what a pain point it is. So that's, that's the primary reason why we started paperless parts is to be able to give manufacturers this tool. And now we've got a whole bunch of other cool things, but that's where, where it all started from. I want to, Thank you for the, the video that you created that is on the paperless website. And I just uh, switch gears. You've created some kick-ass videos. I encourage people to go. What, what is your website domain name, Jonathan? Just so we can get it it's out there. It's blackmountainmfg.com. So you have created just an incredible video for your company on your site. So I encourage folks to just take a look at that. Can you tell us how do you create videos? What's the process? Because I think everybody should have a video like that on their homepage. I've always loved creating videos. I have a YouTube channel, but you know, it's <laughs> nothing really remarkable. You do this on your iPhone? How do you edit oh, it? No. I'm just trying to no, get you got to start with a good camera. You, you got to start with a good camera and then you have to have some good editing software. What um, camera do you use? I use a Sony A7S II, which is a really nice camera for shooting video. And then when it comes to editing the video, I use DaVinci Resolve. Uh, DaVinci Resolve is an excellent piece of software that allows you to take a raw, uncompressed video file and color grade it so that it looks you know, more cinematic or, mm -hmm. or, or really anything. You can put any look on there. It's a really complicated process. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's difficult is, to how long did it take up. you to make that video for your website that was a two-week free time project it shows it but on the flip side you were talking earlier about how you want to create quick videos for different say pieces of equipment in your shop that an operator could scan a qr code and i assume those wouldn't take that long to create so you see video as a powerful tool for learning within your own shop. 
Uh, I do. Have you, have you done do. some of that already? I have done one video. So we're, what you're talking about is a training tool for our company. My vision is that one day an operator who's, you know, either fresh out of school or new to the shop can walk up to any piece of equipment in our shop and scan a QR code or a series of QR codes. And the QR codes will bring up videos and the video will be an introduction or an in-depth explanation of how the machine works or how to do, you know, different setups on the machine. Those obviously would be shot with an iPhone and quickly edited, but the video takes a lot more work than building like a training manual, but it is a much more powerful tool. What sort of videos do you have on your YouTube channel? It's just like... <laughs> Just videos that I made when I was just starting my company where I would just walk around the shop and be like, okay, this is what we're doing today. And sometimes cool. my kids are in the background climbing around on stuff. Very unprofessional, very unpolished videos. But you know what? Here's the thing. I wish I, well, the technology may not have been there, but I wish I had done that on a continual basis at Rapid just as a documentation along the way because we don't have a lot of photos even of the history of rapid and now you've captured that so beyond the, whoever else may see it that's something you say your kids are in the background you know 20 years from now they may be looking at it saying oh wow you know look this is me back then when dad was creating the shock that's pretty powerful yeah one other question i had to ask you which i'm really curious about is you are a listener to the job shop show podcast yourself and how has it given you specific action items that might have improved your shop? What have you implemented as a result? Why do you, why do you listen? It's a great question. I listen because it inspires me to be better at what I do. When I wake up in the morning and things necessarily aren't going well or I've lost hope in a project or I don't know, when things are tough, it really helps to reach out to people that are doing what you're doing who have been through the struggles that you're going through and have experienced the highs and the lows and connect with them on some level so that you know you're not necessarily alone and that people have done this before and that it is possible to succeed. And when I listen to your show and I hear about my competitors down in Denver, the guy that owns Riata or the Focused on Machining guy, Steve Lynch, your old employee, doing what they've done it's inspiring. It inspires me to continue sustaining the mental anguish and the risk and the leverage to keep pushing. Even though you have a partner, we're often alone sort of islands because particularly during the pandemic, there wasn't an opportunity to get together with other shop owners in person, meetups. So thank you for sharing it. I really, I'm glad that it it does give you inspiration. It inspires me. Your podcast brings a tremendous amount of value to my life, I would say. It's been good. And, and it's not just like a nuts and bolts. This is how you do this. This is how we solve that problem. This is the approach we take to that. It's just hearing the stories, understanding the narratives, and knowing that it's possible. It's been good, man. Thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate you taking the time out of your life to, to listen to these things. So that's rewarding for me. It's why I do this. I also want to ask you the something we discussed a little bit before is some of the ideas here. Ideas are easy, if you will, and it's the 
thinking about it in the context of your own shop, the execution, the reconstructing of it to make it work in your own shop, and just the amount of energy and initiative that it takes. And those are your words. Can you just talk to that a little bit? Yes, I can talk to that. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're building something, you're synthesizing, I'd say specifically when you're building a company, you in my case, like you look around and you look at different ideas for how things should be done, how machinery should be set up, what processes you should employ and how you execute those processes. You can get on the internet and find lots of ideas about how things should be done. But at the end of the day, you've got to understand how to deconstruct the idea at its core and synthesize your own version of that solution and build it in your shop so that it fits in perfectly with your unique operating puzzle, your machine. It's never as easy as just buying something off the shelf and dropping it on your floor and plugging it in. It can be really, really complicated. I mean, take for example, like buying a CNC machine, right? People want to start a job shop, they want to be a CNC shop. So you buy a, a CNC machine, but you've got to understand the workflow around that machine. Like, you know, where is raw material going to flow from? Where are the parts going to go to? Where are you going to set up your QC table? How is that going to change the layout of your shop? What tooling are you going to buy to go in that CNC machine? And then what software package are you going to run to program that CNC machine? Like all those questions have to be answered and it can be a little daunting. And the answers are going to change as you get more information. That's true. They, they change as you get more information and then they change the next time you bring a new machine into your shop or when you lose a client and take on another, like you're constantly solving problems around you. And it just requires you to be very awake and aware and, you know, collecting data from all corners of your shop. And, and then also understanding your system and your shop intimately enough to be able to make the right decisions when it comes to integrating that, that idea into your process. Thinking about your thinking is an important tool and it's one that I consciously apply and employ. We can just go through and just act and and act on our thoughts. But if we step back once in a while and say, why am I thinking this way? What is the impetus for my thinking? To me, it gives me a framework for making future decisions gives you the language to move forward and allow actions and projects in the future to take less time and for you to feel better about it because you have that framework. That's a great point. I would also add this to that, Jay. Never underestimate the power of just doing stuff. Even if you don't have a clear vision of what it's going to look like when you're done, so many times in my life, it's been better that I just dove into a project and executed without a full unified vision because the reality is that you know by the time you you finish the project data has probably changed and you rolled with some punches and even if you had had a perfect vision of what that should have looked like when you've gotten done by the time you finished it circumstances changed and it needed to be something else that sort of defines entrepreneurs (laughs) entrepreneurs are ready fire aim and perhaps some non-entrepreneurs are ready, aim, 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 and they never get to the point of firing because the information is always changing. Yeah. And what looks to the outside world with us as entrepreneurs is that we are risk takers and that we are 
plunging recklessly ahead, I think though is encapsulated by what you just said in that we know the information is gonna change, but let's just get to it and figure it out as we go along. And we have the confidence we can do that. Yeah, yeah, I would say that aptly describes my uh, entire business history. <laughs> just like <laughs> throwing myself into things and working tooth and nail to make it succeed. Well, let's look forward in the next two, three, maybe five years. Where do you see yourself in Black Mountain? What's your dream? What's your goals? How are you going to get there? Well, it's such a big question. Such a big question. You can really only answer a question like that in general terms because forecasting beyond six months is very difficult. We could be back in oil and gas. We could be a services-based company. We, you know, whether I'd like to admit it or not, could we might not be in business in, in that amount of time. But if I could flip a magic switch and have the company that I have always dreamed of having, it will not necessarily do a particular dollar amount in revenue, but it will afford me the ideal life and the people that work for me an ideal life. It will afford the people that work for me the opportunity to grow and not necessarily ever have to move on to another job, but always find fulfillment and growth and opportunities at my company. And it will allow me personally the opportunity to spend the majority of my time with my family and um, paragliding the mountains because that's what I love doing. Wow. Does that answer your question well? <laughs> it answers it extremely well because we all have dreams and part of making a dream a reality is verbalizing it. And the more we think about it, the more subconsciously our actions are directed to make it happen. And even better, write it out, put it on your mirror in the bathroom. Once you sort of get that mission statement, and you'd be surprised how closely your life then moves towards that path. But the subconscious mind do a lot of work, right? Yeah. yeah. So, Jonathan, I think this is a great place to wrap up today. Um, so proud of you for what you've accomplished for your relatively young age. And I know that you've got a bright future. It may not be defined exactly, but you have some goals, you know how you want life to be. And I admire the courage that you had and your wife in making Black Mountain happen. It took a lot of hard work, but courage is part of that. Courage in not knowing the path forward, but saying we're going to do it. So thank you for sharing your, your story. Thank you. You were really honest with us about some of the hard stuff. And is there anything else <laughs> <laughs> that we didn't cover you want to get out there or share? I'm very grateful that you had me on. I'm grateful for, for you saying the things you just said. It's good to be on here. It's good to share the story. I would say the one bit of value that I can offer to other people considering starting their own job shop is really just my narrative because I haven't learned any you know, profound insights or discovered any magic formulas for success. I just have my story and I know what has worked for me. Maybe some of the principles can help other people as well. And I hope they do. So thank you for allowing me to share that. And also yeah. thank you for helping build a badass software company, Jay. <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if you guys know what you actually have over there. Like su such a cool company, such a cool product, cool people working there. Thanks again for being on. How can people reach you if they want to 
ask you something as a follow-up. You can call my phone number, which is 317-607-1247. That is the best way to get a hold of me. Or you can email me, jfriedel at blackmountainmfp.com. And how do you spell your last name? Foxtrot, Romeo, Indigo, Echo, Delta, Lima. Friedel. Excellent. Well, I have to say that talking to owners like Jonathan really inspires me. He didn't have the opportunity handed to him. He created it out of thin air. And it affirms that with passion and hard work, and yes, a little luck, and definitely the help of others, anything is possible. So you, the listener, I'll ask you, what projects are you sitting on that need a push? Perhaps Jonathan's story, his narrative, can be that push and help you make the leap. Until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a joyous day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to the Job Shop Show.